Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. 
serving for the end to this pandemic. So on that note, like always, we're going to bring in our political analysts and panelists for the day, and they're going to introduce themselves. Right now, we will start with Brother Haki. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. And I'd like to say peace to everybody out there within the sound of my voice. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And, of course, you know my thing is all about institution building. But, you know, Brother Africa, recently uh, one of the um, most powerful uh, senators, you know, in the, uh, in the uh, political world, made a statement which certainly underscores the kind of contempt he has for, for certain sec- sectors of society here in America. And this particular uh, politician was named Mitch McConnell, but I want you to check this out. Okay. Now, recently, Senator Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, he made a statement in support of states filing for bankruptcy. Now, states are a collection of political entities comprising the country and any major that seeks to impose financial hardship imperils the entire country. So why would a conservative politician advocate a position that could lead to civil war? Now, when I say civil war, now, this is not hyperbole. The schism between blue states or progressive states and red states and more conservative states exists, and it's quite evident in lieu of government's role in social political affairs. Now, I suspect that the fact that the 63 out of 75 of the largest cities in the U.S. are blue or trending in that direction does not set well with this politician. And Detmers told him more than $323 billion may be perceived as indicative of big spending blue states, and as such, a strong motivation for this politician to contribute to the woes by essentially advocating destroying uh, blue states' credit rating and making access to investments difficult. Perhaps the bigger motivation is the ethnic concentration in larger cities in the U.S. It is not uncommon for conservative politicians to view non-whites as the other. Uh, by publicly making such a provocative public statement, I think the intent of McConnell was to communicate his support for right-wing zealots and the illiberal positions they support. My suspicions are based on the fact blue states actually subsidize red states and that they contribute more taxes to Washington. Despite this fact, the politician's statements comes across as ironic, if not somewhat personal. Now, the question to the African Union is very, very simply. What do you do when the people in power have, doesn't have your interests at heart? What do you do? Do you vote for Joe Biden? Do you support Nancy Pelosi? Or, you know, unfortunately, both of these individuals oppose universal basic income and affordable housing, two things that are crucial to uh, survival for uh, the multitude of people here in America. So clearly we got some work cut off for us in terms of what we're going to do in terms of the very traumatic uh, situation we find ourselves confronted with. And without institutions to confront these situations that begin to analyze and to deconstruct what's precisely what's going on, it's simply very, very difficult in terms of actually uh, coming to some type of uh, reasonable conclusion in terms of what must be done in terms of surviving society. So I encourage people to get about the business of building those institutions because institutions are extremely important at this point in history. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Aki. Next, we'd like to welcome you, Brother Anthony. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Anthony. Hey, revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and thank you for having me. Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa 
under scientific socialism. Okay, fine, Brother Anthony. We are now bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show with these illustrious panelists, and it's an honor to be and a privilege to be here. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Okay. Well, listen, audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. It's a weekly radio show under the banner of the African Awareness Association. What we're going to do today, we're going to start out with, with our first segment, What's Going On in Your World Community, then follow up with the theme for today, which is part two of the corona effects, killing in different ways. But before we discuss the first segment on what's going on in your community, in your world, in the community, we're going to pause for this cause. And when we come back, our political panelists and analysts are going to talk about what's going on in our world, the community. And we would like to invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and your community. We're going to pause for this cause, and we'll be right back, and you'll listen to Africa on the Moon. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is an organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state in the world, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourself. Know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common need. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Shout out to black male. Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? In a no more bondage no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, 
denying the fact, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C Lo for push ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, Small, small and medium-sized farmers, then why aren't they privy to this money? 
where clearly when we talk about in terms of profitability, there are people making decisions that only certain people should prosper. And so the question in terms of, well, what about the cost of food in terms of if, if, you, get, if you eliminate effective, if you eliminate small or medium-sized farms in terms of future production of food, then what does that say in terms of the high cost of food or people's inability to obtain that food? Well, it's not a concern in terms of other people in positions of power. And so, therefore, this $8.4 billion that's, that's uh, given to the top 10% of the farmers ensures that they be able to carry on after the coronavirus lines end. Whereas, opposed to when, 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 so when we come to terms of our right to eat or right to reasonable prices in terms of food, that all becomes compromised because what happens is that the government essentially empowered uh, uh, a small group of farmers, wealthy farmers, to, to in fact control the food supply which means that the scarcity of the people's access to food or certain affordable food becomes lesser and lesser. Also, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things, you know, um, when we look at it internationally, uh, you know, one of the things is that, you know, uh, often people don't understand the function and the role of the World Bank. Now, the World Bank role is very, very simple. It's all about agricultural investments. In fact, the World Bank defi- decides what developed nations, what they, what they raise, uh, what they grow, and what they don't grow. They determine the prices for those commodities. And so, therefore, obviously, uh, there's an economic incentive for the West to make sure that you that the, 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 uh, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the countries, the, I hate to say that word, the developing countries, I hate saying that word, but the, the so-called developing countries, uh, their interests are not taken into consideration because what happens is that all their, all their crops are geared toward export. And when you, when you create a situation where crops, all crops are geared toward export, then what does that fundamentally mean in terms of people's access to food right here in the developing nation? It means less access to food. So in essence, what we're talking about is a, is a scarcity. So clearly when we talk about scarcity, we have to understand that when we talk about capitalism, one of the things we have to understand is that in order to have profitability, you must have certain kind of inefficiencies that exist. So when we talk about inefficiencies, for example, when you talk about growing crops in the developed world, uh, they, can't, they can only grow certain kinds of crops. Well, when you only can grow certain kinds of crops, then what that does, inevitably, it, it, it damages the, uh, the, uh, the vitality of the soil. So mean, so the nutrients in that soil gets replenished, and so the possibility in terms of actually being able to use that, use that, that same soil in, in, in the far future becomes almost nil. So clearly this will create a scarcity in terms of people access to food, and so certainly it's something that we've got to be concerned about. But I think even more insidious, Brother Africa, is this whole in terms of this whole question around genetically modified seeds. And then the insidiousness of it all is that the fact that once you lose those seeds, they render the land incapable of growing anything else other than utilization of genetically modified seeds. And so therefore that means that it automatically ensures that not only would the West define what crops would be grown, but um, to the extent that crops are grown at all, it's going to have to get to see, purchase the seeds from the West, which means further, further in putting these, these developing nations in debt. And so clearly, you know, so when we talk about capitalism in terms of how it actually functions systematically, then we've got to understand that this question in terms of scarcity is not something that's, that's, that's objective. This question of scarcity is something that's a direct conquest, uh, excuse me, the direct result of the kind of planning that t- or lack of planning that takes place when we talk about specifically when we talk about agriculture or, or food production. So I think it's important we understand and not be sidetracked by this whole notion that when we talk about scarcity, that we talk about something that's inevitable as opposed to understanding that essentially what we're talking about is something that's systematic. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, we're now bring Brother Anthony in. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? 
Okay, uh, several things, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, to start with, uh, this weekend, uh, there were May Day commemorations uh, all around the world, including inside the U.S. Uh, they, uh, several uh, uh, workers walked off their jobs on Friday, May 1st, uh, to protest against the working conditions uh, that, 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 uh, that they were forced to work under. Uh, such as, um, uh, you know, lack of uh, personal protective equipment, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, social distancing uh, uh, policies and uh, job insecurity, and uh, lack of any be- uh, any benefits. Uh, also, uh, there were there were a group of uh, political organizations that held a webinar yesterday commemorating May Day, which featured uh, labor organizers from uh, from various parts of the world, including uh, Southern Africa, uh, Brazil, Venezuela, Canada, uh, as well as the U.S. And several countries in the Caribbean, and it uh, and it uh, uh, was very informative. Also, uh, there was an attack on the Cuban embassy in Washington D.C. last week. Uh, an individual shot up uh, the embassy building in in Washington. Uh, no one was injured. But there was extensive damage to the building and to a recently placed statue of Jose Marti, uh, who was one of the uh, uh, founders of the Republic of Cuba. Also, there was, uh, uh, there was an attempt uh, made to, uh, uh, to, uh, to overthrow the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Uh, the political party that co- currently governs uh, Venezuela under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro. The attempt was uh, was uh, foiled, uh, but they were uh, but there there were uh, several uh, people killed in the attempt. And um, that's per- uh, that's it for right now. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And next we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Brother Anthony, so a lot of my thunder there with this May Day uh, and the Cuban Embassy. Um, So I won't repeat that over. Uh, I would like to use this opportunity to say, you know, those people who are not organized, who, who don't belong to an organization, this is a a vital time uh, uh, with the crisis of capitalism and, and to join an organization that's fighting for the liberation of our people. And, uh, and you know, we need organization. We don't, individualism is not going to work, and we need organization more than ever. And I just think that uh, anybody who's conscious the highest form of organization of consciousness would be to join a political party. There are a lot of mass organizations as well. Uh, 
but I, I would I would encourage people to join the organization. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Silas audience, we are we are listening to our political panelists as they share with us as it relates to what's going on in our world, in our community. You have heard some of the things that mentioned about what's going on in our world and the community. We will continue this discussion when we come back from the station break. We'll be right back. We're going to pause for this cause.
you know, even though America gives out large prison sentences, inevitably people get out of prison. And the problem is that people are being released from prison every day. And, it's, of course, the potential in terms of the spread of COVID-19 in the African community becomes that much more pronounced. And so, therefore, we've got to be concerned in terms of that. But more importantly, Brother African, one of the things that, you know, I, I find, you know, um, uh, very troubling is that, matter of fact, that you got people, you know, who are, who are currently incarcerated, you know, not because of anything they did or any crime they committed, uh, because they were um, an embarrassment to the state. And so the state felt a compelling need in terms of concocting evidence for the sole purpose of locking people up. And so the situation like that where, where, where America, where you got all these political prisons, the, real, the reality is that, you know, a lot of these people simply could be released. They never constitute any kind of any type of uh, a problem. Well, they never really constitute any kind of threat to U.S. government other than the, the, the truth. Uh, and so, therefore, the, the reality is that when we talk about dissemination of the truth, it shouldn't be a criminal offense. And so it seems to me that at the very minimum, these people should have been released. Uh, you know, in addition to people who are serving low-level crimes in terms of you know, people who are like stealing a loaf of bread in terms of survival or someone, um, you know, who who's, who's, who stole something, someone, you know, or you know, you know, petty kinds of crimes. It seems to me it makes a lot of sense in terms of as opposed to proliferating this virus to simply you know lower the level of people in these prisons and reduce release these people that really don't have to be there. But then again, that's all wishful speculation because the, the bottom line is that we can't we can't lose fact of, of reality that when we talk about prisons, we also talk about dollars and cents. And of course, we have to understand that when we talk about when we talk about contract contractual relationships between these private prison association uh, uh, corporations. And these states, then they got a contractual interest in terms of maintaining, you know, a certain amount of people in these prisons, and so therefore the states have to pay, and so therefore the pay, the state has an incentive to make sure that the people remain there. But I, my position is that even though they have contractual agreements, the bottom line is that, in terms of dollars and cents, the more you keep people, and the more people infected with COVID-19, and the more they get out and spread that, then the more it's going to contribute to the overall demise of the economy. So it seems to me it makes more economic sense if you really care about economics. It's simply that those people out there who are not a legitimate threat to anybody, political prisoners who are not a threat to anybody, allow them out of, those, out of, these, out of these cages because they don't deserve to be there. So that's my view on that, Brother Hafkin. I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony? Yes, I concur with, um, with Brother Hackey's view, and I would add, that uh that uh that because of uh mandatory minimums and the three uh and the three strikes rule which victimized a lot of african and uh indigenous people uh you know in terms of the prison population which one of the candidates from uh uh for president promulgated when he was senator by the way uh you know, uh, you know, you have a very, uh, you know, dangerous situation, and also uh, in terms of the uh, uh, of the stats I, w- I was reading through, it seemed like the prison population corresponds to those states that have a heavy presence of African and ind- and indigenous people, and uh, in addition to uh, uh, coronavirus spreading as results of fr- prisoners being released. Uh, the prison staff and, uh, and and prison guards 
uh, interact with these prisoners day in and day out basis, and they go into and out, and and out of the the larger communities. So uh, so there's a poss- uh you know the uh, you know the coronavirus because it doesn't re- uh, respect political uh, 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 occupations or political boundaries. You know, uh, you know, it's spreading that way as well. And um, you know, and the thing is, though, uh, uh, let's see. A lot of the contradictions associated with capitalism are being blamed on the coronavirus. So the coronavirus is being used as a cover. And one of the con- uh, contradictions is the heavy mass incarceration. Of the African and uh, Latinx uh, population. And Brother Moses, your response. Yeah, um, the coronavirus is plaguing this world, and you know we. We have to amount amount a response that is appropriate, that is based upon scientific uh, knowledge, and the prison systems, you know, are are a petri dish for this this virus, and so we have to have compassion for the prisoners uh, who who have not committed that that grave of uh, uh, offense to society uh, relative to a life and death sentence uh, that the coronavirus represents. And so certainly, you know, releasing prisoners seems to be uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, however, the powers that be uh, have no incentive whatsoever to do such a thing. Uh, the last thing on their minds is these prisoners. Uh, uh, they're Trump is interested in getting back to work, getting the economy stimulated, and and uh, making money, and uh, and getting the stock market back on track, and and all of that. And that's the prisoners and the, uh, the vulnerable population is not a concern, and so we have to recognize that. Uh, I I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. You know, Pat, you know, panelists, one of the things I ran across earlier this week was an article, actually a video, um, that was taken in one of the hospitals up in New York by a nurse, and she was highly upset. She was upset about the reality that she made the allegation or she made the charge that many people are dying not so much for the virus itself, but more from from the use of the ventilators, how the ventilators are being used and putting too much pressure on the lungs of the people. And as a result of it, it is that pressure that's killing the people. And she don't understand why they continue to allow the ventilators to be used in that in that capacity. Or, or in that doing that kind of causing that kind of damage, she's so highly upset she had to walk away from the job. So she she did not want to be no longer associated with that kind of medical practice. 
what do y'all make up that allegation or that that that, that um or her story of this is what's happening inside these hospitals? Well, I think with social distancing policies in place, it becomes very difficult for for patients uh, to have their fa- uh, their families monitor what's going on in these hospitals, uh, because uh, in addition to so uh, you know to uh, you know to this forced quarantining and whatnot. Uh, there's a restriction on uh, on the access family families have to patients, and uh, so uh, so there's no uh, you know there's no one available to speak out on their behalf, especially if the if the condition is not monitored closely, and uh, and uh, it represents a, a very uh, a dangerous situation. Because once a person's admitted to the hospital, they can do whatever they want to do, and that's a dangerous situation. And uh, you know, it becomes very important, uh, you know, for families to remain, uh, you know, in close contact with their loved ones as possible when when they are hospitalized. And uh, you know, and. Um, uh one of the one of the problems is the fact that some of the equipment uh one of the working can in addition to a shortage of uh personal protection equipment uh the training on how to use so, uh some so, some of this machinery is not adequate and uh that's another factor that 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 can contribute you know to to the uh to the deaths of some of these patients, and uh, so uh, you know the quality of healthcare in the U.S. you know uh, you know really needs to be uh, you know uh, carefully scrutinized. And uh, people uh, that have loved ones in the hospital is very important that they maintain in close contact, you know, with uh, you know with that person. As much as possible. You know, Brother Haki, we just talked about last week our reports um, articulating that hospitals are making money off the death of these patients if they labeled on and die from the virus. Now, given that reality, and listen to the reports from this particular nurse about how people are dying as as well as losing the ventilation. How 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 unlikely would you say that this reality is something that um could be avoided if the hospital truly wanted to do this? Is there more of incentive to continue to allow these kind of unnecessary deaths to go on? Because again, when you talk about function on the capital system, whenever they can find ways to make money, um, money would take precedence over life and death when it comes to the well-being of human beings? I, I think, that's the, I think that gets us to the, the clutch of the problem, Brother Africa. It's, it's all about dollars and cents. And so to the extent that these, these respirators are pumping, uh, you know, too much oxygen, a great, a too great a pressure for their lungs to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to carry, 
the mere fact they, can, they, they, they know that and persist, it's all about the dollars and cents. And keep in mind, one of the things that's very, very interesting, you alluded to the fact that when you talk about in terms of, you know, the utilization of these, these ventilators, it's lots of money. We're talking about $39,000 $39, per treatment. And so, therefore, it's an economic incentive to continue using these respirators, even though you know they're malfunctioning and that they're actually killing people. Because either way, the hospital wins. And so as long as you have a situation where, you know, conceivably where, where dollars and cents outweighs uh, a human life, then you can expect these kind of these kind of these kind of atrocities to continue to happen. And but I think I have to tell you about it, Africa, one of the things that perturbed me to the end that when we talk about in terms of the need of quality respirators and the mere fact that the government to this day persists in uh preventing, you know, uh, or or at least refusing to actually purchase, you know, more and more more ventilators speaks values in terms of the worth of human life. So one begins to wonder, you know, this 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 resistance in terms of Getting these respirators, is there a, 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 a larger message that's being uh, that's being presented here? It, maybe the message is that we don't particularly care about life. In fact, the more people die, in fact, the better. And you got to wonder about that because clearly, they, even though despite all the criticisms the government, the, the federal government has faced in terms of its refusals to purchase more respirators, they still refuse to purchase respirators. So clearly, you know, I think this kind of and, and, and keep that in mind. So when you have a situation in you know, hospitals where people are dying, you know, from, from, from respirators that are poorly operating, of course the federal government's position is very, very clear. That well listen, at least we try. You know, you said that we got a shortage of ventilators, so we don't have we can't afford to go over in the ventilators, so we got to use what we got. And of course it's a reason it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a as far as the government's concerned, it's a reasonable uh, a rationale in terms of the continuation of uh, using uh, respirators that um, that are, don't function well. Because you don't understand because we understand the value of life. We disagree with that assessment, but nonetheless, I think those who are among the right wing of the government will have a problem in terms of people dying because the, the case can always be made, well, we always try. So, so I think that until we come to some kind of understanding in terms of the value of life in America, and this is the, one, of the, one of the very crucial problems in terms of you know, um, any kind of discourse in America, when you start talking about the value of life, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to, to, for some people to comprehend. Yeah, those people take the position that, that that there is no there is no certitude, there's no there is no uh, certainty in terms of life, and so therefore all life is tenuous, and so therefore you know you know if something happens, you know as a result of someone's negligence, and so be it, you got to die anyway. So I think people got this kind of perception in terms of you know kind of um, ambivalent nature in terms of you know what exactly you know what constitutes death, and so therefore as, as long as they got that 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 that, that ambivalent nature in terms of what constitutes death then the death of people is simply just uh, a death among many, many more to come. So, so I think that it's a, philosophical, it's a philosophical problem that we're confronted with in terms of the value of human life. And I think that you know, capitalism certainly makes it very difficult for us to come to the realization that human life does have value. Uh, often human life in the context of capitalism is viewed as a commodity. And as such, it's viewed as a commodity, and what you get is what you get. Um, the old saying, um, uh, beware! Uh, uh, um, um, be, if, once you purchase something, uh, beware what you purchase. I mean, there are no guarantees in terms of what you purchase. I mean, you know, so when you get on these respirators and they don't operate uh, efficiently, then so be it. And it's just that's just that's just part of the marketplace. You simply got to die. I mean, that's that. So I think that uh, in terms of reasonably resolving this situation, brother Africa, I don't see it anything short of you know destruction of capitalism. Uh, but I do appreciate the nurse, the nurse integrity. We actually, stand up and say, "Listen, I'm not going to be complicitous in this whole killing of people." You know, I'm not going to do that. So she left. 
But but keep in mind, she's a, she's she's a, she's she's rare. She's among the few who say, "Listen, I will not be complicitous in terms of killing people." Most stayed there. Why? Because they need the job in terms of paying their bills. Uh, so they stayed. Not necessarily because they're insensitive in terms of human life, but because they have you know bills to pay. And so for, therefore, they look the other way, even though they know that essentially what's happening is respirators are in effect killing people. So clearly, Brother Africa, to make a long story short, I think until we come to realization in this society, you know, that human life has value, and, and it's not based upon uh, uh, market status. Until we come to that realization that human beings uh, are the most um, are the most important, uh, the most important entity uh, to this thing that we call life. Until we get to that point, then all life is is uh, disposable, and it's that very simple. So uh, that addition to is all about the money. Mix for a powerful mix, and so therefore, I don't see any way of this changing, uh, you know, until you know, uh, until fundamentally, you know, capitalism, um, capitalism is destroyed. Brother Moses, should there be some kind of internal, not only internal, but some kind of outright public investigation on the use of these ventilation machines and its relationship to deaths? Of people who have been led to die from the virus, what is your take on that? Well, I think I need to investigate this um, relationship, uh, this problem with the ventilators uh, a little more closer. Uh, certainly, the critical problem is the national. We need a national, universal health care system that is not that's based upon people's needs for health care and not the profit-driven system that we are faced with today. And this is the critical thing. Uh, it creates a culture, a whole culture and a environment of, of health and uh, caring. Where, and we need, we need that, that um, culture. And um, it starts with, uh, with a, a systematic uh, change. And that's the real issue. Uh, certainly, there's going to be there are problems with with uh, ventilators, and uh, I don't know I don't know that that, that that's the major problem uh, right now. Uh, I haven't been hearing that as the the major problem, but certainly it needs to be looked into. Thank you. You know, Pat, it's one of the things I find amazing, and I don't know if. If anything can be done about it, but I think there is something to um, something that needs to be viewed in terms of when one asks the question, we need to transform and radically overthrow uh, an economic system that teaches and allows you to profit billions of dollars at the expense of misery. For example, there was just recently a report. Uh, that came out this week on uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. They it stated that his net worth, his net worth, has increased by twenty four billion dollars during the past two months dealing with the coronavirus um, pandemic. He has received over twenty four billion dollars of profit himself. Now, should that ever be any kind of situation as this where you allow individuals to make that kind of money at the expense of the suffering of the people? Um, Brother Anthony, then Brother Haki, and Moses? Yes. Um, 
actually under capitalism that is uh, uh, that sort of uh, outcome is, is acceptable. And I want to, um, um, you know, want to follow up on a point that Haki made earlier, that the coronavirus, uh, you know, is magnifying the contradictions of capitalism, but it's masking at the same time, because uh, a lot of the problems that exist in this society are being blamed on the coronavirus, and not on capitalism. And I think it's important, uh, you know, to point it out that the coronavirus is magnifying it. Uh, For example, uh, you know, all these, um, uh, you know, demonstrations uh, demanding the reopening of the economy, you know, uh, you know, led uh, by these, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, right wing uh, groups that are funded by the U.S. bourgeoisie. Uh, for example, and also the level of racism that exists in the society, uh, you know, toward Asians, Africans, uh, the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, etc. That is being magnified minorly. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, Amazon... Uh, because a lot of people are uh, are shopping from home now, they're making huge profits, and uh, they're basically uh, uh, you know profiting uh, uh, of a, of a very uh, bad situation. But under capitalism, that's acceptable. And uh, if you can if you compare that to a socialist society such as Venezuela, Cuba, where human life is a priority. There, is, uh, uh, th- 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 there are efforts made to minimize uh, human suffering and death as much as possible. But here, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, money rules, and, uh, and, 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 and people are suffering as a consequence. You know, Brother Haki, there are definitely incentives, motivations, all kind of reinforcements to allow something to continue when you stand to benefit billions and billions of dollars, like Jeff Prezo. Is this a lesson that people need to come to? learn from when we look at the undermining essence of how the system functions and how it can co-opt people um, to take positions that be totally against the interests of the well-being of human beings. Very good point, Brother Africa. Uh, very, very good point. Uh, you know, this, this whole question, this whole no economic notion in terms of productive individuals versus non-productive individuals is something that we have to challenge. Essentially what it's saying is some people value more, more than other people's value. In other words, this value is often determined, is based upon uh, how much access you have to wealth. But the problem, Brother Africa, when we, especially when we talk about wealth, is a question in terms of, you know, uh, who, can, who has access to the levers in terms of attaining that wealth. And the reality is that when you look in terms of the capitalist system, clearly the capitalists, those individuals who have large sums of capital, have access to the levels of wealth. And so, therefore, it makes sense 
that they will make tons and tons of money because the, the game is rigged. It's set up to ensure that they that they become wealthy. So when economy, economists come along and call them productive, and essentially what they're saying that they're saying that what these people are doing, the criminal activity they engage in, is certainly justifiable and legal. And so something that I think as as working people, as people of consciousness, we have to reject this notion that there's classes of people that some people are better than other people, and we have to we have to fundamentally reject that. But one of the things in terms of his wealth, brother Africa, you know, when we talk about in terms of the the, the, the costs being stacked. Keep in mind, you know, this guy uh, had runs an organization in which he works these people like 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 slaves, literally, and pay them like even worse. And so you have a situation as a result of that, he's able to his stocks are valued in such a way as such such a way that you know that to obtain his stocks you pay a pretty pretty healthy sum in terms of obtaining his stocks. And as a consequence, you know, uh, Amazon is valued you know in hundreds of billions of dollars. And so of course he stands to make billions and billions of dollars. Uh, of course. What does he do in terms of you know being uh, providing some type of a uh, uh, providing some type of a, a, a better existence for people in society? Nothing at all. That's not the job of capitalism. The job of capitalism is to get all that you can, whenever you can, however you can. And it's important that we understand however you can because when we talk about your phrase those, aside from the issue in terms of stocks, we also have to keep in mind that there's a lot of other kind of um, criminal activity taking place with respect you know, to his organization. Uh, recently, uh, there is a, um, a a congressperson, and it's, it's, a, it's a, quite a few congresspeople who are taking, who are trying to get um, Amazon to call for antitrust legislation. Now, recently, it's been it's it been exposed that Amazon using cryptic codes um, for the credit for the purpose of uh, tapping to third party sellers. Now, third party sellers are those individuals who have this contractual relationship with Amazon to sell their their, their products under Amazon. So what Amazon did was to tap into the computers, find find the orders, remove those orders, and place those orders with Amazon. So they bypass the the, the third party sellers, and so therefore if they get no money. Amazon gets the money, and as a consequence, when you look in terms of kind of sales as a result of this kind of crooked practice, he's making he's making millions and millions of dollars in terms of just in trade trade alone. But clearly, you know, but this is just one example in terms of the kind of underhandedness in terms of that the capitalists can engage in and get away with this guy free. And this notion that, in fact, going before this, the um, the White House, I'm not the White House, the Capitol, Capitol Hill, going before the Congress to actually talk about this kind of criminality, of course nothing's going to come of it because he's not the only one that's doing that. A lot of uh, major corporations do that, Apple as well. So clearly. And the second thing, Brother Africa, is also, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that when we talk about criminality, you know, uh, another thing that Jeff Bezos' organization did, and they do it very, very well, according to uh, to, to individuals who were formerly employed there, uh, he, he would have his employees go into the accounts of third party third party uh, sellers, find out what is selling, and in turn convey that information to Amazon. Who Amazon would then take the same products and reduce the price. It would undercut the price of the third party sellers, and they would make a sale, and third party sellers don't. Again, he making millions and millions and millions of dollars. Now, so this question turns. Now, I think it's important we understand that this question turns to antitrust depends on who you're talking about. Because if you keep in mind, brother Africa, you know, just remember, just back back in 2008, the Affordable Care Act. Remember, the whole idea was on the Affordable Care Act was to impose competition among insurers. That was the idea. Well, recently they had a Supreme Court hearing in which uh, the insurers prevailed to a $12 billion verdict. In other words, the, 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 the insurer's position was that as a result of the Affordable Care Act, we weren't as profitable as we could have been because they forced us to compete. 
Well, antitrust say you're supposed to compete. They're saying that to compete undermines their ability to make money. They prevailed. They won a $12 billion judgment saying that they, they got a right to engage in antitrust practices. So, so, so what do you say? So what do you say in a situation like this? On the books, they say antitrust laws exist, but in, 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 in reality, antitrust laws only applies to who they want antitrust laws to apply to. And so it's very, very clear, you know, so there's a great incentive for people like Jeff Bezos to do what they do because essentially they're protected by a system, which is criminal. So until the kleptocracy, kleptocracy uh, is revealed to all, until we as working people and people of consciousness begin to understand, you know, the fundamental injustices, the fundamental criminality of this capitalist system, until we realize that we simply, we acquiesce and we participate along this process, not understanding that we do so at our own demise. And so this is the fundamental conflict that we are confronted with as a people of conscience, you know, uh, when we look at these kind of maneuvering that goes on, you know, in, in, in corporate America. So clearly, Brother Africa, to, to, to long story short, to answer your question, you know, I, I, I think that there's not much you can do in terms of really impacting these kind of practices. But one thing is sure, as long as the system validates that kind of behavior, then you can anticipate it. As long as the system continues to make sure that the most quote-unquote productive have access to all the wealth, then you got you got, clearly got to understand that by having access to, to all the wealth, it means that those who are quote-unquote non-productive won't have access to wealth. So that fundamental disparity that exists in society isn't going anywhere as long as capitalism exists, and that's the cold reality. Brother Moses, what comes to your mind when you see one individual has made over $24 billion in the last two months based upon the impact of the virus? What you make of that, Brother Moses? Well, this shows the, uh, the system itself, um, the laws, the property relations, uh, how probably property is distributed, et cetera, uh, the fundamental legal legal uh, property relationships must be altered if we're going to avoid this kind of thing, and that would be on a socialist system uh, where there's socialized appropriation where he wouldn't be able to privately appropriate that that profit because the workers would be in control of the business. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the future. Uh, right now we're faced, the face, only thing we can do with right now is try to tax them or something. Uh, uh, capitalism, only thing we can do with capitalism until their socialism is to regulate it and try to control it, uh, try to uh, uh we see the the right wing forces, uh, the Tea Party, the the Donald Trumps, all the, the Reagans. All they want to do is get rid of government so they can unhamper the business from making profits and uh, regulating the safety net for the society, uh, the um, the environmental controls, the the things that protect people from from um, being damaged by their products and stuff. Uh, we we have regulations. Uh, that's the only thing we have in the cap- under this capitalist system. Uh, uh, the best thing we can do is regulate, and uh, and that's and Donald Trump has has lifted lifted what what major regulations that have been placed. Uh, He's lifted them, so you know capitalists are able to 
do whatever they want to do, they run rapid over the environment, and uh, and you know, there's no there's no uh, any kind of controls. Um, this um, uh, this person uh, Jeff, what is his uh, Bezos? Bezos, yes, is able to to um, make all this money. Uh, and you know, this 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 is gonna go a long ways in terms of society and and the working people uh, who are poor and desperate. You know that kind of money uh, would help uh, in terms of free education, healthcare, et cetera. If we had we had control of that, uh, and this this is a this is a glaring example of why capitalism is is so so inhumane and uh, undemocratic. Uh, uh, originally, you know, the socialist program was uh, social democracy. Uh, that you know that uh, that was the call. Um, the the Marxism it was in a struggle with the social democratic movement and uh, and to, to as to what way what is scientific socialism versus utopian socialism and uh, you know control the of the of the, uh, the manufacturing and the production. That's what scientific socialism is about. Uh, otherwise, we're just talking about some kind of reform and allowing the capitalists to continue with some kind of reform, maybe some kind of tax or something. Uh, I'm going to have to leave it right there for us by rambling. Thank you. But you know, Brother Africa. Brother, Brother Africa, Africa, could I ask something? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, let's go with Brother Anthony. Go ahead, Haki. Well, just in terms of callousness, you know, uh, when you talk about an individual having access to $23.5 uh, billion over a span of a couple months, it's absurd. No human being is that productive, and that's according to capitalist, uh, capitalist economics. No human being is that productive. So the mere fact that he can have access to those kind of funds speaks values in terms of, you know, the, the capitalist perception of, you know, uh, who is fit and who is not. But more importantly, Brother Africa, I think there's something else that's just just sort of point out this callousness that's going on in terms of you know how the system sees human beings. In America, tens of millions of pounds of food was destroyed recently. Uh, of course, it was affiliated with uh, markets being destroyed when COVID-19, you know, hit the hit the country. Now, ironically, when you talk about destroying tens of millions of pounds of food, it begs the question: Why would you want to destroy the food when you got so many hungry people in America? Why would you want to do that? Well, clearly, uh, you know, we understand that the farmers have been paid not to not to grow it. We understand that. But just because it already exists, the mere fact that you can disseminate that food to hungry people at these food banks uh, should have been a, a forethought. But what, as it turns out, uh, the, the White House in particular, uh, the agriculture secretary, he had no desire in terms of disseminating this food to people who are desperately hungry in America. Now, what does that say in terms of how they perceive people, poor people in the society? You got the food, you rather destroy it than actually give the people who need it. So clearly, you know, this notion in terms of, you know, productivity at all costs, if that means destroying food to keep prices high, then that's precisely what they do. And so as poor people, as working people, as people of conscience, it seems to me that at some point you got to take a stand. I don't think we can afford at this point, at this point in history, Brother Africa, to continue to acquiesce and to pretend like everything is fine. 
I think too many people are being pragmatic. And as a result of being pragmatic, a lot of this insanity that's taking place with respect to how the system treats people is going to manifest itself in such a way that we look literally, we're looking at internment of large number of people in society simply because too many people in society continue to acquiesce to what's going on in the society, not to you writing on the wall. And so, therefore, this treatment in terms of poor people is abhorrent. And the mere fact that my brother talked about the fact that $23.5 billion, you know what you could do with $23.5 billion, you know, in terms of feeding people, housing people in America? You can end homelessness, you can end homelessness overnight with $23.5 billion. So, so clearly, you know, um, you know, there's something that's there's, there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of the way the system operates. But, uh, but until we get a, until we have a a a a a a a a a, a, a full uh, understanding in terms of you know the, the the real kind of problems affiliated with this capitalist system, then we continue to go along with it under guise that it's the best of possible of all systems. And so I'm I'm very much concerned in terms of you know you know if we if we if we don't adequately understand what's going on. Then what we're doing inadvertently is we're empowering the, the people in positions of power who perceive people who are poor as as worthless anyway. You empower them to do what they will to people who who they perceive as 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 uh, as as a, as a hindrance. And so, therefore, as far as the powerful as the wealth is concerned, the capitalist class, if you could get rid of them, that would be that would be preferable. So we got to understand that uh, the writing's on the wall, and uh, you know, and, and 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 unless we understand that. You know, uh, we won't do anything. We don't take a stand. We simply play safe. And, there, and the reality is, and we talk about this point in history, there is no playing safe. So all those people who saying I'm being pragmatic, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself. I'm not going to say anything. I'm safe. No, it doesn't work that way. History has never worked that way. When you look at in terms of, and you look at Rome, for instance, right? As, as Rome was fi- was falling, and, and Nero, and, and as he says, Nero was fiddling, he was fiddling on his fiddle. Uh, the first thing he said that who was he? Who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. Where's their fault? Their fault is the economy. The economy is, fall, is, is falling. It's their fault. So you know, attack them because it's their fault. Well, who the hell do people in America think as this economy falls? Who the hell do they think will be blamed for this? Who do they think will be blamed for this? Uh, one thing is clear: Asians, in particular Chinese, they they definitely going to be targeted. There's no question about that because this whole coronavirus bull. Uh, people like Trump who have sort of made it popular. You know, to uh, demonize uh, Asian people, in particular Chinese, in terms of filling the Chinese with this virus, of course they're going to be they're going to be uh, they're going to be vilified and, and, and pointed out as a potential uh, source of uh, a reprisal. Also, uh, there's no question about it. Latin people are going to be singled out. I mean, after all, the notion that somehow that Latin people are coming over here taking our jobs and they're part of the problem. Of course, they're going to be a, a, a they're going to be in the sights of those right wing nuts, you know, who who position is that you know America would be better if we just got rid of all these Latino people, and of course, if nobody haven't figured this one out by in the 21st century, but let me elucidate, let me make very clear on this point. When it comes to the, the number one favorite target in terms of at this at this kind of continuing to deteriorate is African people, at their favorite target. So make no mistake about it, as this thing falls, they're going to continually point. Continually, they're going to point to African people as a problem. Right now, they're very settled in terms of doing that, but it's going to become much more browsing as time goes on, and uh, you can bet that. And so for African people who sit there and think that you're being pragmatic, I'm not going to send them and keep my mouth shut. I'm going to, it's all going to be good. They better understand history. History just doesn't work. There's no pragmatism when it comes to when these societies deteriorate like this because these people who are responsible for this pain and suffering 
are not going to take responsibility for the decline of the system. They're not. They're going to jet out of here. They're going to fly the hell out of here. And the people who remain, who are frustrated and angry and, and who are hopeless, the people in power can give them a, 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 a target to, to present them with a target to point their guns at. Well, the target's going to be African people by and large. And so we can't. We, we don't have a we don't have that luxury of saying we want to be. <laughs> I want to be pragmatic. That doesn't exist. Historically, it never existed, and it's certainly not going to exist in the context of America. So if African people haven't figured that one out yet. I don't know what it's going to take to make them figure that figure it out. But clearly, you know, we got we got some we we got some major challenges before us. And and part of this is that the perception in terms of the worth of human beings. And long as these capitalist position is that certain human beings are more worthy than other human beings then you're going to have fundamental injustices. So clearly, we got our work cut out for us. Yes. I wanted to add that uh, that Amazon, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, has generated tons of revenue over the last couple of months. If it's able to uh, afford to pay its CEO twenty four uh 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 nearly twenty four billion dollars, and this is the same company that uh that fired a worker Chris Smalls, who who or, who tried to organize a demonstration of protest the working conditions that Amazon employees were suffering at their warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Uh, the uh, uh, lack of adequate protective equipment, uh, the working conditions, lack of any social distancing to prevent the uh, the, the, the spread of COVID nineteen. He uh, he protested, and as a result of his protests, he was fired from his job. And so, without organization, what they do with workers that speak up, they terminate them. Uh, one way or another, so uh, it speaks to import- the only way that, that this is going to be resolved is for the workers to get better organized, which of course the capitalists are opposed to. That's why they uh, they discourage uh, you know uh, uh, labor from organizing, but that is the only solution. Uh, labor has to uh, get organized in order to seize political power. And right now, that doesn't exist in the U.S., and that's why you have uh, the phenomena of a CEO m- 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 making uh, nearly $24 billion in a couple of months, while the workers under him suffer tremendously. You know, when I heard that, I just wondered what workers who work with, work with the company, what they think about it, the actual laborers. Because to me, just a class example. Uh, again, in a capitalist system, workers don't understand how wealth is made. They don't understand the value of their labor and how they continue to work and don't receive the benefits of their labor. Does that make sense to anybody? Here you told me this one man got $25 billion, but you're working on a daily basis for you to 60 hours a week. And you barely making it, and you don't understand how do you get all this money that that he's not actually working. Some people think with the mental capacity he's doing work, but what work he's really doing? 
that there's a value in labor. Labor, there's a mental process in labor. There's a mental yeah. process that goes on in terms of how the workers organize themselves to create and do production. And this is how the wealth is generated. So I just wonder if workers need to become more conscious again and show you how unconscious workers are in this society. We're talking about production and its relationship to creating wealth. Yes, Brother Anthony, you uh, want to say something? Yes, you're correct, Brother Africa, and uh, and part of the problem, the workers do need to become more conscious. As a matter of fact, that would be a, pre- a prerequisite uh, for their better organization, because right now, uh, uh, let's see, with the educational system in this society, and that's the most, <clears throat> and the educational system is probably the second most, uh, is probably the most powerful tool the ruling class has uh, because they control the way people think. And as long as they retain the ability to do that, it becomes very difficult to raise the level of consciousness of the, uh, of the working class in society. Uh, that in combination of control of the media. As a matter of fact, some of the things that Brother Haki pointed out earlier already taking place. Uh, Trump has put a freeze on immigration, uh, a, a put a moratorium on issuing any green cards, and uh, has excluded families in which, uh, you know, w- one of the partners uh, d- does not have a Social Security card from getting, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, the the, the uh, a stimulus payment, and uh, and uh, he has con- repeatedly blamed uh, China for uh, for uh, uh, you, you know for as being the originator of the coronavirus. So the the political conditions are being created. Uh, you know, in case uh, you, you, uh, uh, you know the uh, you know everything falls apart, for placing blame, the political conditions have been created already, and uh, and uh, Africans are already a target. That's why we suffer uh, so much from police brutality in our in our communities, because the uh, 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 the the the, the uh, the police are part of the working class as well, and they take their frustrations out on, 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 on the Africans instead of the sources that are really responsible for the conditions that exist in the society. But that is because the ruling class controls uh, the propaganda and educational system. But Africa. There, there is a bit of a paradox in terms of what you raised around the question in terms of the power of the workers. And here's the paradox. Increasingly, um, these, these corporations uh, don't need workers. Uh, because of the advent of uh, uh, you know, automation, they really don't need workers. And so this is the fundamental problem that workers are confronted with in society. And keep in mind, just structurally, one of the things that we understand in terms of how capitalism works anyway uh, one of the things is that when we talk about the uh, precarious class, we talk about people who would never have a job in a lifetime. That's part and parcel in terms of how capitalism works. In other words, um, remember, Marxism would say that you have this this, this, this large group of people who are surplus, this large group of people unemployed. So 
So therefore, you know, you always have this pool of people you can tap that that that, that uh, the the the, the capitalists can can tap tap into in terms of in terms of you know work. Well, they don't have they don't they don't need a large the, the question in terms of large pools of unemployed is no longer a factor in terms of the operations in terms of corporations. So this is the fundamental problem that we, we, we're facing with. So I think it's important that, that, that working people understand that given the, 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 the economic reality in terms of, you know, you know how capitalism is organized, then uh, they see essentially they see workers as esoteric. They don't really see a need for workers. And so, so when you talk about someone like Bezos who's making billions of dollars not doing, a, not doing a damn thing, simply because the system is set up to do that. Do that. Well, if wealth is created based upon the power of labor, then you can't explain how it is that this guy making $23.5 billion, you know, in the course of a couple of months, and he haven't done a damn thing, but yet, here it is, he's awarded $23.5 billion. So the question, so, so we have to understand that there is this, 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 this irony that runs through capitalism, and I think as, as working people, we have to be able to understand that a lot of the views that we historically held in terms of the working class relationship, you know, to, 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 cap, to the capitalists uh, may not be relevant at this point in, at this point in history. And that's, a, that's my concern, because you've got these large number of people, and they have no desire, no interest whatsoever in terms of employing. In fact, they tell you that we're not going to employ them. And so when they talk about a gig economy, they talk about, well, you do the best that you can on your own, because you would never find a job in this society. Then what are they saying? So, so organization we definitely have to have. I don't think it necessarily will be centered around employment, because the bottom line is that, you know, let's be clear. As this coronavirus uh, 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 comes to a conclusion, we understand that a lot of those people are not coming back. They already told you. Uh, people like Boeing, uh, people like uh, Westinghouse, a lot of other organizations, they already said, listen, these people are gone. Even before the conclusion of the virus, they're already gone. They already made the decision. Others are going to get the check, the stimulus check, and then at that point they're going to say, okay, we no longer can use you. And so automation becomes much more uh, viable to those, to, to those capitalists in terms of running these corporations. So this is a fundamental problem that we have, you know. So what I think the focus has to be not so much on terms of around around you know employment. The struggle has to be around human dignity. I think that's what the struggle has to be around. And people will say, well, human dignity, eh, that's simply that's um, you know, that's um, that's philosophical. That's something nice to say, but in, in the cold hard world, it doesn't provide anything. You know, and they're absolutely correct. It doesn't provide anything, uh, not anything uh, concrete. And they're absolutely correct. But the bottom line is that the only there has to be some catalyst in terms of people taking a stand to create a better world. That catalyst has to come from somewhere. If that catalyst can't come from people actually finding a job, then it has to come from somewhere. So my position is philosophically, even though it's pretty mushy, you know the whole the whole philosophical thing in terms of you know uh, you know um, you know uh, self identity and and, and 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 all that stuff. It's true, but the bottom line is we have to start somewhere. If we don't, if we don't organize society around some some pivotal point in terms of as 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 as, as a, so much as a source of of, of uh, beginning some type of rally. Then I don't think that's anything we can do in terms of jobs uh, that are that are reasonably uh, we can, can be achievable. So that's that's my problem in terms of in term in terms of in terms of that analogy that you raised, brother Africa. So I'm I'm thinking that you know we we you know you know so when we go to people and tell people say listen you can't uh, you know and tell people say won't you get a job and people say well yeah well I put in ten applications nobody called me I can't I, nobody, you know, nobody wants to give me a job all right but you insisted they got a job well we can't we can't you know, reasonably you know say to that brother and sister that they're being disingenuous 
when we know the reality structurally in terms of capitalism, the reality is that most people won't find a job. We know that. So can we then turn around and tell those same brothers and sisters say, listen, the key to organizing is this question around jobs. Well, you know what? It's a losing proposition. So my thing is that even though what I'm raising is philosophical, I think we have to start from somewhere. I think there's a notion in terms of, you know, your, your right to human right to exist has to be a rallying point in terms of, you know, struggling against a system which is, which is diametrically opposed to the interests of human existence on this planet. That's my view, and I just thought I raised that, and I close with that, Brother Africa. And as a high key, your point is very, very valid because it's a question of how uh, technology has had an impact in terms of how they have organized labor today, organized production, how things are made now. You can make it now with less people. But even with the invent and creation of technology, they still need human beings in some capacity. So even when we talk about less workers, but you see with these needing workers, it hasn't been able to totally um, um, eliminate uh, all workers. So at this stage, I think it does become a question, too, in terms of when you talk about industries, you know, who owns control industries. Should we allow just one, two people, a few people, or those who really make their industry work? So in terms of human power, whether it's intellectual or whether it's physically, they still need human beings. But in terms of your sense, the, the issue you raise, I do agree with you. we got to look at this whole impact of technology. They need less human beings, but still, they still need human beings. Because, you know, if you look at, um, if you just break, break down the industry of Amazon, you aim with all of this mechanization stuff, with mechanization, you still need some people for that to be able to, to function. So anyway, I agree with you asking, but also I do still think we have some some leverage or some impact that we can uh, that people can use to raise this question of uh, this question of who is the rightful owner of the the industries and how society allows people to function and and create a, a system where it be more balanced in terms of human beings being able to live in decency and enjoy, you know, the benefits and the resources with that particular given environment. But your point is well taken. Um, panelists, what I'd like to do right quickly before we go on the station break, you know, our theme tonight is dealing with this whole question of the effects of coronas and how it kills in different ways. Earlier we talked about this question, we talked about this question where they talk about social distancing, where people be spread apart. But in prison, for some reason, that concept doesn't apply. So it killed folks as a result of that. Also earlier, we talked about this whole question of um, maybe how we are using different tools, you know, technology, how we're using the uh, ventilation machines. They're supposed to cure you, but they're using it as a tomb to kill you. So we got to begin to understand in terms of what is really going on as relates to people in the society. As we alluded to many times, that it is a war on the people, and the people got to understand this. What I would like for y'all to do real quickly before we take the station break is that I would like for y'all to speak to this issue of how this this pandemic has brought out the real essence of what it means to be American. For example, recently in Michigan, they have had militiamen come out with armed weapons, even into the capital, the government mansion, demanding to change policies to open things up. 
and there was no kind of state organized response to this kind of attitude. Of course, the uh, militiamen were Europeans, they were alt-right folks. While at the same time, from day to day, we finding people, brothers and sisters who got these um, masks on, getting shot because people accusing them of being something that they are not. So what do y'all make of this whole question of these militia groups coming together publicly, outright with their weapons, they can go into federal buildings and nothing is done to them. Matter of fact, they was given praise by this administration. Y'all make up of that phenomenon. What can we draw from that, panelists? That uh, that the current U.S. administration, uh, you know, is in agreement with these uh, right-wing forces, and also the fact that, uh, uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, Africans getting uh, shot because uh, because they're wearing a mask to protect themselves. Uh, is uh, is a sign that that African life has ha, has less value in this society than you uh, than European life, and that's been the case historically. And um, you know, and the thing is, I think what uh, what the economic crisis has exposed. Is uh, the real, uh, you know, the reality of life inside the U.S. for the masses of working people? Yeah, I think, I think the, I think the message is, is very, very clear. Uh, there, there are some people who are not perceived as threats. Well, it's clear there are others who are perceived as threats. So the mere fact that you got these right wingers, you know, coming to these state capitals, you know, with weaponry on, and that's no response from the police, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of uh, admiration or respect they have for these right wing groups. Uh, clearly, we understand that these people are being manipulated by billionaires, and so clearly, all of this is all about to give a legitimate legitimization, uh, you know, to these right wing forces, and this is what this is all about. And one of the things I would caution people, uh, you know, and I think it's important they they they, they go back and, and and check this out. But one of the things that when you look at in terms of the, the presentation and news in terms of these groups is very, very interesting. They almost come across as apologetic, and they certainly come across as being legitimate. And you read it very carefully. Read any article very, very carefully, and you ask yourself, "So wait a minute." Based upon this article, that if, if I was a right winger, then I would join these organizations. Because what you essentially what you're saying to me is that their their goals are worthwhile and that they're a legitimate expression of the interests or, or, or the aspirations, you know, of, of right wing folks or white people in general. So clearly, you know, uh, I think all of these all of these movements and when it, when, it, when and by the way, that we're not talking about large number of people in attendance, but nonetheless, but nonetheless, they get enormous attention potential. I mean, enormous uh, uh, coverage from the media. And the question is, why is this small group of nuts getting such enormous uh, uh, coverage from the media? Because they want to legitimize right-wing forces in society. All this is in preparation for what has to come in society. Earlier when I talked about the fact that the situation, the system is in decay and that they're going to look for someone to conveniently to, to blame, well, you know, who do you, they, you think they're going to marshal? I mean, who, what forces do you think they're going to marshal? Uh, what forces do you think they're going to utilize in terms of uh, – in terms of carrying out the will of the state, 
is these right-wing forces. These are the same people who went around to the state capitals talking about some, you know, we want to go open back, open, open, open the jobs back, blah, 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 blah. So it's all part of a grand strategy. And this is where I think people, people look, see this, and they dismiss the, the importance in terms of this kind of thing. And particularly when you talk about the kind of coverage that these guys receive. So there is a much broader picture. And so I think that we had to begin to understand that. And so you're right. And then when it comes to African people, there's no question. There are African people who get shot, African people who get stopped and interrogated, harassed by police officers, simply because they're out in public with a mask on. Well, ironically, that is what, that is what, the, that is what the state calls for. It calls for people to, to protect themselves and protect others with masks. And so when they do that, even when they participate in terms of what is law, at least what is expressed as law, these, same, these African people get harassed and killed. But yet the people who actually violate laws in terms of, you know, as, as, as the laws are expressed, not only uh, disregard social distancing, but actually go there with weaponry and plain sight for all to see in a public gathering. Now, if that's not provocative, I don't know what it is. But yet the response from law enforcement has always been, well, it's okay, they're legitimate. So it seems to me that the writing's on the wall, and when this kind of stuff happens, that we get to fundamentally begin to understand that it means something. It's not in isolation. See, I think, I think too many people look at this stuff in isolation. We got to start looking at this stuff from a systemic perspective and understand that when stuff happens, understand there are pieces to the puzzle. And understand those pieces, then we, under, we come to understand the grand strategy in terms of what they're actually doing. So, yeah, clear, Brother Africa, you're absolutely right. There is a clear divergence between the way the, 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 these racist whites are, are perceived and the way law-abiding African people are perceived. So clearly there is a distinction between the two. So here, this is another example of how this corona effect is taking an impact on killing us. You can get killed wearing a mask or you can get killed while a mask. That is your choice. Is that what they're saying to us? Yeah, that way. It. Yeah, think about it. Brother Anthony, one quick question, and then we'll move on to our station break. I think it's worth you talk a little bit about it before we go to a couple articles that we have chosen for today when we come back from our break. Can we just talk a little bit about the significance and importance of this nut up in D.C. shooting to the Cuban embassy with, with, um, with an AK rifle? What do you make of that particular act? Was this something that you think someone did just out of spontaneous reasons that they just didn't like the embassy, they don't like Cuba, they just shut up? Or does it have more implication, more deep meaning behind this particular act? Because if someone did that to an embassy that belongs to the U.S., they would declare it as an act of war against the country. Panelists, can you response to that particular phenomenon just took place recently of Sun Nut shooting up the embassy, the Cuban embassy up in Washington, D.C.? Leave us all, Brother Anthony, your take on that. Yeah, well, um, well, uh, well, at a minimum, this individual has a certain hatred towards Cuba, but I think it runs deeper than that. I think the U.S. government is, uh, uh, is and has been hostile uh, to Cuba uh, for nearly 60 years, and ever since it, des- it decided, to, uh, you know, to embark on a, 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 on a revolutionary path, socialist path of development, 
And uh, and the deeper uh, issue, I think, uh, Cuba represents. And the reason why the U.S. government is so hostile to Cuba is because Cuba represents an ideological threat. Just as Grenada, when it embarked on its revolutionary process, represented an ideological threat to the U.S., as small as it was. But the fact, uh, but but the U.S. has historically been hostile to any country that has tried to build a socialist society in what it perceives as its backyard. And I think I, I think that's the biggest picture I draw from what happened. Brother Hackey, your take on the Yeah, well, I, I think I think this nut is uh I I I'm if I were to speculate, I would say this nut is probably affiliated with uh probably affiliated with some uh some intelligence uh unit uh or something. Um, you know, that's just speculation. But it clearly, you know, shooting the Cuban industry, it, it, it was it was geared it was geared toward uh, obtaining attention. It wasn't just I don't think it was arbitrary. I think it was part of a part of a strategy. So I, I, I after all, I mean, you you you're watching DC and you got a AK-47 and you are shooting it. I mean, of course, would I mean, you're going to somebody's going to see you. So you know, in order to do something like that, you got to on some level of uh, on on a conscious level believe that listen. There's a strong probability somebody going to see me, so I'm beginning to think that if if you think it's there's a strong probability somebody going to see you, then clearly there is some some strategy behind your actions. So I think that if, you, if we, I think if, if the more we learn about this guy, we'll find out that he's affiliated with maybe some in, some kind, some kind of intelligence or, 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 or law enforcement. Uh, but in any event, uh, you know, but if that were to happen to um, to uh, to a, a, a U.S. embassy. Heaven forbid! Oh man, they all they they attack they attack the U.S. embassy is an act of war. You know we have to we have to uh, respond. You know you know you know more you know, economic blockades or you know undermine the economy or assassinate the leaders. We got to do something because we can't allow people to, to to shoot at us like that. But of course, this was Cuba, and so we all understand that the antagonism between the U.S. and Cuba is very, very deep and very, very long. And so, therefore, you know, it, it, I was surmised that there are a lot of people in positions of power, right-wing people in positions of power in Washington, who love the idea that this guy did that because of the symbolism involved in it. So I, I, I think that you know, um, you know, you know, you know, this threat that uh, Cuba regularly represents, as far as the U.S. is concerned. It's something that exists only in the minds of the most rabid uh, right-winger. You know, uh, this notion that people have a right uh, to freedom, people have a right to access to resources, people have a right to be educated, it's not a bad thing. The mere fact that right-wingers perceive having a right to education, a right to food, a right to education as a bad thing speaks values in terms of the kind of um, uh, inverted logic that exists in the mind of a lot of these right-wingers. So clearly, you know, uh, you know this, this kind of incident you know, I think we can anticipate more of it happening in the future, but thankfully nobody was injured or hurt. And Brother Moses, your take on this careless act, this terrorist act? It definitely was a terrorist act. That's first of all, we have to say that. Um, the and it's interesting, you know, this is um, a Russian AK-47. A weapon of choice. That's interesting. Uh, but um, you know this. You know the 
Cubans are not favored in the in the eyes of Trump and the administration, and and uh, he's reversed the little that Obama was able to do in terms of uh, the Cuban five and the and the normalization of relations, et cetera. He's all reversed everything, and uh, you know the Cubans are under sanctions and. You know, it's just a hostile situation, and it continues in this kind of environment that produces that kind of thing, uh, uh, the, the rhetoric that uh, Donald Trump spouts and stuff. Uh, but we have to defend the Cuban revolution and defend the Cuban people against these right-wing attacks. Thank you. Okay, panelists, let's pause for this call. For those who listen to the program, this is After on the Move. And when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. we focus more on precisely as relates to our theme tonight, the corona effects, chilly in different ways. When we come back, we discuss a very interesting article. We'd like for you to get a chance to Google up this article titled, Racism of Reopening the U.S. Too Soon. Communities of color stand to lose the most by this premature posturing. We're going to discuss these articles and more, so we're going to pause for the cause and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. You can't fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people. 
raised a real important issue as it relates to the so-called politicians and people of power. It states that the real issue is the dangerous and heartless views Merle, those of racist and xenophobic elected officials who have the knowledge and the power to slow the spread of the coronavirus 19, but simply refuse to do so. Your response to that statement? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, Brother Africa, the, the, the power of media. You know, once media start um, uh, categorizing, you know, uh, um, COVID-19 impact, uh, disproportionately impacted African people, then, you know, once they start doing that, then as far as the right wing was concerned, particularly right wing politicians, well, what the, what this virus disproportionately impacts African people, so therefore the destruction of African life is a good thing. It's not a negative thing. So as far as they're concerned, opening back up, opening back up is fine because the people who disproportionately be impacted are African people, and so therefore since they're the people that you, you don't want to target anyway, so their death is a plus. So you know, <laughs> so you know, uh, uh, clearly you know uh, it has racist implications. And then when you think about the fact that we all understand in terms of the billionaires in terms behind a lot of these right-wing groups, propping up these right-wing groups, but the mere fact that they, they sought to, to, to have a relationship with some of the most racist, most reactionary groups in the country speaks violence in terms of the real motivation in terms of doing what they're doing. I don't think it has anything to do in terms of, you know, uh, the spread of coronavirus per se. I think, it's the, 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 I think the real message is, you know, uh, it's us, you know, against the system. You know, because if you stop and think about it, it's us white people against the system because this impact doesn't doesn't impact us. It impacts African people. So therefore, to keep us out, out you know, out of, from from working, is to penalize us, and we resent that. So we see this as an indicative of a system uh, which is out of control, which is oppressing white people. So therefore, we have an obligation to fight against it. So it's a very shrewd tactic in terms of. You know, uh, uh, you know, getting legitimizing you know this right wing movement in this country. Uh, so I think I think that is the real focus. So I think the coronavirus is sort of a side, side, side focus, but there's no question. Uh, it, it, it you know um, it disproportionately impacts African people, and as such, you know nobody takes it very very seriously. And, and matter of fact, when you think about in terms of the government's resistance in terms of respirators. Possibly that could have something to do in terms of their thinking. They're definitely adamantly opposed to this notion in terms of more ventilators, uh, respirators, you know, uh, you know, uh, in America. And the question is, you know, why is that? Even though people are dying, well, if they're disproportionately dying in the African people or people of color, then there's no hurry to bring those those respirators and uh, ventilators, you know, into service. So clearly, brother Africa, I think it does have um, political and or racial implications, and uh, you know, we'll stay tuned and then we'll see what happens. Brother Moses, are they opening up this so-called economy too soon? Does it have any kind of racial overtones for you? I think, you know, first of all, we have to understand that historically, from the beginning of this economy, um, we were super exploited. Uh, we were brought here to to um, get this economy going and we are the backbone of the economy. We are the essential workers of the economy. We were brought here as slaves in order to be the essential workers for the economy, and we've always been the essential workers for the economy um, to this day. And so, you know, there's a disproportionate number of, of um, 
African Americans and who are who are the essential workers in this economy, the bus drivers, the the service workers, the restaurants, all the all the um the essential services, the hospitals, doctors, uh African uh people are 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 more uh, involved in in that kind of line of work uh, in terms of survival as a people, and so when this 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 pandemic hits, it 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 disproportionately affects us. Um, we not only that, but we have these uh, diseases, diabetes, and high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, which complicates the situation. But the fundamental thing is we are the essential workers. Uh, I think, you know, the bus drivers, et cetera, uh, we are a disproportionate number of them. And uh, and so, you know, obviously, you know, uh, um, the slave driver, the head man, uh, the boss, uh, Donald Trump wants to drive us back to work and uh and, and keep the quote economy going, etc., at the expense of our lives, and that's the bottom line. Uh, there is no, there is no if, ands, and buts about it. Capitalism was built on the black to, backs of black people and slavery, and it continues to, to try to be propped up by by black people. And uh, the only socialism is socialism for the rich. And um, I'm I was surprised by this. Um, uh, stimulus package. I I am actually surprised. I, I, the second thing since Obama's election, most surprising thing about the U.S. government that has happened since the Obama election was this stimulus package. I'm, I I had no I had no uh, faith in in the government having any kind of compassion for working people uh, in terms of trying to put money in the, in the pockets of working people and. Uh, and this bill out uh, uh, it surprised me, but you know the capitalist system is still the capitalist system, and there is no general kind of capitalism. Thank you. You know, panelists, I ask y'all for your last response for tonight as it relates to this topic of the corona effects, chilling in different ways. When you look at the reality that they state that they state that. There's a second round of this virus coming and gonna be worse worse off than this round. They stated that they have not tested over one percent of the population. They also stated that there will be no virus or no vaccine cure for the virus no time soon. Even though they're trying to make you believe they can do something, create something within a year a year to nine months. They stated all of these things, but yet they talk about reopening up this economy. And the bad part about it is that those who are workers are forced to go to work. Why are they forced to go to work? In order to maintain their existence. But if they don't go, they still run into a problem in terms of how do they take care of their, 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 their basic needs. It reminds you of the statement of Kwame Kuhlman when he stated that capitalism is a gentleman way of slavery. 
it began to put us in a objective condition of really in a, in a, in a feel of being enslaved. What should the people do if they open it back up, knowing that the risk of maybe being infected is, is a lot more greater than most people when it comes to African people and, and, and underserved communities, families? We have to um, intensify our level of organization. Uh, we should re- re- respond, but it has to be an organized response. And uh, we have to work more as a collectivity because uh, individual responses won't work. They'll simply fire you and get someone else. Because uh, the existence of a lot of our people is so precarious that people will do anything to get uh, to get employment, and uh, and that including uh, you know uh, jeopardizing their lives if necessary, and uh, that's the sad state of affairs. I mean, um, uh, I think one of the reasons why this. Uh, pandemic is disproportionately affecting Africans is because we work in some of the most dangerous jobs in the society. Uh, The ones where we have the greatest exposure to the general public and uh, where, uh, you know, and and in occupations that have some of the unsafest working conditions such as construction, mining, uh, uh, you know, uh, food, uh, you know, food processing, etc. And uh, and the only way we we, we gonna turn uh, we we can turn turn things around is through organizing and uh, and and fighting for our rights as human beings. Yeah, well, what do we do, Brother Haki? Well, what you raised, Brother Africa, is a very intricate, very intricate question. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that given the, um, the objective conditions that our African people are confronted with, uh, ask an African person, you know, to not go to work out of fear of contracting, you know, COVID-19, it's probably not realistic. Uh, certainly, in terms of survival, uh, they need that little money in terms of being able to pay the bills. So, it's very so it put us in a very precarious situation. There's no question about it. You know, when they open up this economy, that uh, the the likelihood in terms of the uh, exponential increase in terms of deaths among African people will increase. But there's not much we can do in terms of that. The only thing we can hope to do is that those of us who 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 are not um, contracted the virus. And we begin to understand the nature of the beast in terms of our existence in society. And then hopefully there'll be a, you know, us uh, who suffer from this uh, maladiction, hopefully they will begin to understand, you know, that we have an obligation in terms of not only to our people, but to humanity generally in terms of over, overcoming, overturning this crazy capitalist system. Um, and, and so that this kind of thing in the future, you have a situation where, con- where this country would be uh, – geared toward uh, doing what it has to do in terms of protecting human life 
Right now, the system is organized for profit, and so therefore, the health of human beings is not a consideration, which is very, very clear when we look at it in terms of the kind of uh, uh, death resulting from COVID-19 uh, among the richest countries in the world. So clearly, you know, uh, we, 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 you know, hopefully we will learn something, you know, from the deaths of others, you know, who suffered this, 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 this uh, infliction. And, uh, you know, we, we move and we organize, and we do what we got to do in terms of building strong and stable communities, uh, do what we have to do in terms of collectively creating social conditions for our children to make sure they grow up to be the best and brightest they possibly can be. Uh, but it's going to take work, and it's going to take a realization that uh, we're at war. So uh, in terms of answering your question, Brother Africa, it's a tough one. I'll take the easy way out and say um, let me let me think more about that. Thanks. Brother Moses, we damn if we do, we damn we don't. What do you tell the people? I think we lost Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, we believe we might have the solution to this, to, this, this, this dilemma we're in. And we can discuss that briefly with Brother Anthony. He's going to talk about an institution that we need to build and a path we need to take to allow African people to not be entrapped. In this 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 game of this game of oppression and death, we're gonna briefly talk about that when we come back. We have our final thoughts. Don't you go nowhere. This is Africa on the move.
Revolutionary Party GC and the National Council of Arab Americans are organizing African Liberation Day, Palestine Not by Day 2020 on May 23rd. It will be podcast on uh, on uh, uh, on Blog Talk Radio on Africa on the Move from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Our theme this year is not yet Uhuru, not yet freedom, not yet liberation, in combat with women's oppression, neocolonialism, Zionism, and settler colonialism worldwide. And we, uh, we chose this theme this year because in spite of the work of our ancestors, and uh, and and the masses of our people worldwide were not yet free. We have not yet obtained liberation in Africa and Palestine. 
and and uh, throughout the diaspora. And so we have to organize uh, at, uh, like never before, and we have to work harder to fight for our freedom. And uh, and the enemies that are arrayed against us uh, include all forms of imperialism, such as racism, Zionism, women's oppression, settler colonialism, and neocolonialism. And we have to fight against that, and we can only do that by joining an organization that is working for the liberation of our people. And to learn more about uh, uh, the, the details of our activity for that week, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Or you can contact us at 202-246-4896. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for the important information. And we would like to remind our listeners and our supporters that remember, put down on Saturday, May 23rd, from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., you can listen to that program live on this program, Africa on the Moon. Now, Brother Haki, in our closing, I guess we'd like for you to give us a summary of some of the major thoughts or issues that you would like to remind our listening audience that we'll discuss tonight as it relates to our theme, Part 2, the Corona Effects, Healing in Different Ways. You'll find the thoughts for tonight, Brother Haki. Yeah, you know, uh, we, we covered a lot tonight, Brother Africa, and you know, one of my biggest fears is that we convey too much information, you know, for a relatively short period of time. You know, we only can do this for two hours, so we're trying to com- compact a lot of information in a relative uh, short period of time. But so hopefully a lot of the information, that, a lot of stuff that we, we talk about, uh, you know, does uh, uh, permeate the, the broader consciousness and people begin to look into what we're talking about, to research it for themselves, to find out the legitimacy of what we, what we say. Now, the thing is that I want to point out, when we talk about the, uh, the curious nature, you know, of this economy, I think it's important that people understand that this is just not uh, something to say, you know, uh, you, know, uh, to be, you know, to be flippant. That the reality is that the economy is extremely uh, precarious. And one of the things I want to point out there is a concept called debt-to-GDP uh, ratio, and it's important that we understand precisely what that means. And so essentially what we're talking about is the, what kind of how much comes in and how much goes out and how that impacts a, a national system or how national uh, economy. Now, in, in the context of, um, for instance, if you say 70% GDP, uh, 70% debt-to-GDP, then essentially what they're saying is that when you get to that point, when, when this government gets to that point, when the country gets to that point, then it means that the economics are str- uh, strained. Uh, it means that there's finding some difficulty in terms of actually being able to pay his bills. When you get to 100% of debt to GDP, then essentially what economists are talking about, they're talking about the economy is actually in trouble. And when we talk about in trouble, we talk about, we talk about uh, recession, uh, deflation, depression, uh, those kind of things. So it's important we keep that in mind. Now, as far as the U.S. is concerned, when we talk about debt to GDP, the U.S. has 105% debt to GDP. In layman's term, that means that the country cannot pay its debts. It cannot pay its debt. The $32 trillion national debt the U.S. has accumulated and continues to grow every time they have these stimulus, uh, these stimulus pr- uh, programs. 
this debt cannot be repaid. And so no amount of borrowing, uh, no amount of uh, accounting uh, maneuvers can change the reality in terms of the instability or the precariousness of this economic system. It's going to fall, and there's no question about that. The question is when the fall of African people will be organized, prepared enough to sustain whatever comes at them, because there's no question about it. We're talking about the flow of history. And for those who think that somehow that America is, is exceptional, that history doesn't apply to America, well, think again. Uh, history applies to every country on, in, in this world. And so none is immune from the, from the throes of history. And so having said that, we understand that given the precarious nature of this economy, then we have no other recourse but to organize and to create those institutions. We must. If we're sincere in terms of saving our children, if we're sincere in terms of uh, our longevity in society, the organization is a key. It's very, very key. So all these uh, different views in terms of ideology is all in good, but we have to have come together to bring some discussion in terms of clarity because if we don't have some kind of discussion around clarity, then there's no possible way to create these institutions that we so badly needed. So having different institutions, I mean, ideologies in themselves is not a bad thing. We think we bring different strengths to the table, and that's a good thing, which means that strategically, tactically, we can do different things better uh, based upon our own ideology. So clearly we got some issues, and we, we need organization, and uh, I encourage you know, African people to, you know, to create those institutions. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, because without unraveling the matrix, and uh, it becomes extremely doubtful that we'll be able to uh, weather the storm that's coming our way. And I want to thank you for having me. And you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And, Brother Anthony, will you give our listening audience some final thoughts about tonight's program? Yes. Um want to convey the fact that uh, this uh, the crisis we're in right now is deeper than the coronavirus. The coronavirus is uh, is shedding light on the crisis of capitalism, and that is the primary contradiction we're dealing with now worldwide. And until capitalism is destroyed, the masses of African people and uh, and uh, humanity as a whole will continue to suffer. So we must organize in order. Uh, to build a unified socialist Africa, uh, that would be that is the ultimate solution to the problems African people worldwide are facing, whether in Africa or in the diaspora. So uh, I encourage people to um, uh, to uh, study research. And share information as much as possible and get organized. One unified socialist Africa. Thank you. Having found out more information about African Liberation Day? Certainly. Uh, for more information about African Liberation Day, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Or call us at 202-246-4896. All right. We'd like to thank all our political panelists and for bringing their contributions to today's program. We'd like to thank you, the listening audience, our supporters, 
for allowing us to come to your home this evening and listen to the information that we tried to bring to you for the sole purpose of making a better future, not only for our people but for all of humanity. As part of this, as part of this program tonight, we would like to suggest if you get a chance, there's a couple articles that related to this topic tonight that we'd like to encourage for you to um, check them out and read it. One article is titled Socialism at Its Finest After Fans Bazooka Fails. This article is from Portside on March 23, 2020. There's another article of we'd like for you to check out when you get a chance. Come from the Washington Monthly, April 24, 2020, titled The Supreme Court Justice Most Hostile to Charges of Racism. And there's another article titled The Tea Party 2.0 Reopen Government Protests Linked to Right Wing Donors. Uh, this article written on the 21st, 2020, April. And um, when you get a chance, please check the article out. On that note, we'd like to say to everyone that we'd like to remind you that remember, as a human being, Without information, you cannot think. And without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage you, if you really want to help your people, you want to help move humanity forward, the best way and only way you really can do this is through organization. So we encourage you to join an organization that is doing something to help advance humanity or advance your people liberation. Until next time, we see you next week. Any questions or comments, please write to Africa on the move to at gmail.com. We'd be more than happy to respond to you. You have any issues, any questions, any topics you would like to discuss or would like for us to discuss, please email us and let us know. Until next time, remember, let's subscribe to go forward, Apple, backwards, and novel. And we'll see you next week. Every now and then we'll bring you a message from Brother Kwame Ture on consciousness. And he's still blazing a trail evil to them. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Kwame Ture. As he comes down, let's Give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the firing line, who shook up America in 1966. We he holler, black power, black power. Black power, 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 black power. Black power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it?
All right, Brother Kwame Ture. Let's give it up, Brother Kwame Ture. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of, uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our central committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. 
I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellions, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now, for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious, look, you want freedom anyway, let's be serious, let's sit down, let's plan it, let's wait protracted war, and let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though 
he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association uh, Convention yeah so many of them the National Baptist Convention <laughs> as a matter of fact if my memory serves me correctly now and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized but he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She will get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teachers unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power power and power comes only from the organized 
masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized, should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be all of us so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say just to run away from the truth. 
We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference. We said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America, and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it, and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African-Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans. Of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. <laughs> you African, yeah, where you were born, Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born, Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born, Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interest. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news, here they come. World news, today President Clinton said, <clears throat> World news, today Newt Greenwich said, world news, those who's running for president can It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor. Because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they are incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, 
international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, on a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. It is these pure, poor, that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I knew was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew as a little girl, I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know, I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious.
quickly conscious, and this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the SNCC team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa, and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the Black United Front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibility to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This united front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party's been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time, this was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan, Vernon Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry. Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women, Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something, and the enemy will knock it down, and you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together, a lot of work, a lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. 
The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life, really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and... When I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm let that you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years, and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I, our party made an assessment. And uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, because uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend. But the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming and, you know, he's sentimental. Minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time, and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, it was, he just... Uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. 
And uh, I took for him some old copies of Muhammad Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Muhammad Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Muhammad Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By... 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. 83 was announced. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan, our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all that even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> He's rough, you know. He's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, you're not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting 
I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, I know you old people, so I was before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago? Yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't bite his tongue for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience, so... He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them. Really, I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you'll see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You will look and you will see that. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that... Uh,